This is The Guardian. Today, why is there so much money sloshing around the art world? So we've just arrived in Regent's Park on a mild Wednesday afternoon and there is, you can probably hear the hubbub, there are so many people about. And, and this is it, this is the spot where people come to look at the art, to pose, to blag, to be seen, to see. It is freeze. For London's art scene, it's arguably the biggest event of the year. The chance to schmooze, to show your stall as a gallery, your value as an artist, and well, to buy and sell a hell of a lot of work. So if you've never been to Freeze before, it's a massive white tent. So you're in some sort of giant gallery supernova. And it's just, it's just a constant barrage of artworks. I mean, you're, it's very overstimulating. Something of a visual assault for the eyes. There are giant sculptural pumpkins courtesy of Anthea Hamilton, fungi from Turner Prize winning Taishani, paintings, installations, a pink silk glove one artist is using to tickle the crowds. What's happening? I'm being fondled. We're little tentacles, no? All together as one. <laughs> we have 164 galleries traveling from 37 countries to be here in London and showcase the best of contemporary art. Anyone who's interested in art should be here and, and, and see the fair. It's really a unique moment where you're able to see the entire art world in one place. Frizz is amazing, everybody needs to come. People with super yacht tans who have had a lot of expensive work done pose against very expensive works. Art and fashion students look chic and utterly aloof. Inside, it's a fun bubble that seems divorced from the anxiety around the cost of living and an economy crashing outside its doors. And if I had the means, I may do, what am I looking at here in rough terms, in terms of what it would cost? Like a small car, a big car? A, a, a small car, but not a really expensive car. Ultimately, Freeze is a commercial event, and this year the art market has been booming. Sales are back to pre-pandemic highs. So any that we're seeing here that have already been sold? Yes, like the painting of Gunterfer, for instance. Oh, can you show me? But the pieces here aren't labelled with price tags, Buyers won't say how much they might spend, and gallerists are coy about talking money. Um, and if you don't mind me asking, if I was asking to yes. buy it, what could I be expect to be paying? I mean, I think we don't like to give prices. I, in I way. know. Okay, well, what about this one? Uh, this is very expensive. It's over a million dollars. From The Guardian, I'm Noshin Iqbal. Today in Focus, Inside Freeze, what does it tell us about art, money and power in 2022?
Jonathan Jones, you've been covering the art scene for The Guardian since the mid-90s, so quite a bit of time. Do you remember the first Freeze Art Fair in 2003? Freeze, by the way, started out and still is a magazine which began in the 1990s and was seen as the definitive magazine of the young British artist YBA, Damien Hirst generation. I do remember the first Freeze for me, I remember mm. seeing it as the end of something as much as the beginning, because in the 90s, the British art scene, it was really quite punky and raw. For years in galleries, they've been debating, what is art? Now we know it's a dead sheep preserved in a tank of formaldehyde. The artist's earlier work, which included a preserved shark, has given Damien Hirst a reputation for being bizarre, some would say sick. And there was only one guy buying it all, Charles Saatchi. Right. You know, we don't talk about him anymore, but there were no other famous big British art collectors. There were still only a comparatively few commercial galleries mm. um, in Britain, you know. And then, and then Freeze came along, the Freeze Art Fair took it to this global level much more moneyed and luxurious and um well i remember thinking it was a bit smooth and fake what was that first fair like i'm not sure if i was allowed in because <laughs> um the guardian did the special preview supplement mm. i did the essay and the essay really upset them <laughs> what did you say <laughs> yeah, jonathan i think it was a bit cynical i think i said something like it was bringing in a kind of glossy international commercial art world into what had been something a bit punk and something a bit raw. I think what they realised was it was the moment not just for international art collectors to come to London, but also for a wider middle class audience to come along, not necessarily to buy anything, but perhaps with the idea that you might conceivably at some level be able to buy something or, or that you would see what was, you know, what was new. It, they, they, they managed to make it the fair of the new. It sort of almost usurped the Turner Prize. Mm. In the 1990s, the Turner Prize was where the ordinary public would go to see what was the absolutely latest in art. When Freeze began it, it expanded that. So, how to describe it? It's a pole with a mirrored bottom, like a lamp, basically. It's a sculpture of belts and... I mean, it looks basically quite bondagey, a bit BDSM. And then behind it, six canvases, spray paint graffitied with, I cannot hide my anger. And Jonathan, freeze isn't just the fair itself, like the week around Freeze has become something of a frenzy and it's become an annual moment in the art world. Can you explain why it is such a big deal? When it opened, it had strong support from the Tate. And I think the Tate were the first people who immediately sort of coordinated their autumn openings, including the Turner Prize, to fit in with the Freeze calendar, as it were. So it immediately became a very kind of official part of the art calendar. And nowadays, all English galleries and museums, even, you know, the National Gallery, pitch in in this big rush, this October rush. They um, seem to save their big blockbuster exhibition openings, don't they, for, for exactly, this particular moment? Exactly. I mean, I'm, I'm 
painfully aware of this because I, I've, you know, I'm trying to review about a dozen things this week, whereas I know that by December there won't be anything opening at all. And here's a plea, here's a plea to galleries. Perhaps you sh some galleries you might want to consider not opening your exhibitions. <laughs> Just so Jonathan gets some time to week. walk around. <laughs> of course, it's partly because, because of the international elite coming to London. I mean, it's a bit worrying that is it is it more important to even to public museums is it important to them to have these rich people see their shows there seems to be a gravitational pull of money around freeze which is quite mysterious and which affects public institutions as much as as commercial ones it's quite striking how there is there is a certain expression that's very common at Freeze. It's sort of slightly, and it sounds like a cliche, but eyebrow raised um, for those who can still move their face and looking unimpressed. Some might describe it as quite regal and poised. Some might say it's quite haughty. is open to the public in Regent's Park for a long weekend in London every year. But before it opens, there is a VIP day. Can you tell me about who these VIPs might be? Who is buying this work in terms of those big spenders? Yeah, well, um, I think Damien Hirst said, you know, the art world is full of scoundrels selling rubbish to idiots. He put it, he put it in a slightly <laughs> more demotic phrases than that. But and he should know, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 you know, I mean, Russian oligarchs were among the big collectors of contemporary art until they were banned from everywhere. But, you know, they won't be at Freeze this year, but they certainly have been in the past. They'll be, um, obviously, established artists, celebrities, a smattering of celebrities, and obviously art collectors. I mean, I've been a Freeze VIP. I don't think I am this year, but I have been. But I know that in previous years, you had access to a fleet of chauffeured Mercedes that you could, you know, swan around London in. I haven't done that, by the way. <laughs> but but in technically, if you had a VIP pass, you could you had access to that. Um, as well, of course, those VIP lounges that are beyond the usual freeze lounges. and The VIP. ultimate velvet rope. Yeah. So there's all that kind of stuff going on behind the scenes. There's all kinds of schmoozing going on and... And what about the, the ones that aren't sort of individuals, that corporate entities like investment banks? Aren't they shoring up a lot of art and sticking in some vaults and warehouses somewhere? Yeah, I think that happens a lot in continental Europe. In Germany, you'd find, you know, the banks are huge investors in, in art. They tend to appoint sort of uh, experts to do their art buying yeah. for them. Excuse me. Hello, sorry. My name's Nasheen, I'm from The Guardian. Do you have a minute to talk to me? Yeah, absolutely. Why Can not? you, first of all, introduce yourself? I'm uh, Andre Cardenas. Yes. And Andre, why are you here at Freeze today? I'm the representative of Agustin Cardenas, the artist. Um, could you tell me a bit about why Freeze is so important? Well, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's, there's been a shift in the art world, right? And those mega fairs have been Basically, it's been like a tidal wave. And the past 15 years, we're here, we're in Hong Kong, we're in New York, we're in, right? I mean, if you look at the stock market the past 30 years and the art world, 
then you understand why we're here like that, right? Because it's... But I'm on the artist side, it's a very different... Do you think the art world has become too commercial? Of course, of course, absolutely. Yeah, it's too commercial for sure. Jonathan, contemporary art has undergone this radical escalation in value since you've been art critic at The Guardian. What people are willing to pay, how much money there is in the global art market, it is just dizzying. What has been going on? Basically, the insane boom in art prices, I think, has to reflect the insanity of today's economy. If 1% of the people in the world, you know, own such a high proportion of its wealth, today's economic problems and injustices are, are well known, but it's also increasing numbers of, of billionaires who do have access to incredible resources. Oxfam warned on Monday that for the first time since records began, inequality has grown in almost every country in the world thanks to the pandemic. But billionaires have seen their wealth soar. But when, when we say that the prices have gone out, I mean, they've long, they long since lost any sense of um, reality. Mm. I was looking today at, I found a chart of art, art record prices since 1701, um, which is kind of fascinating. And it's really 1961, the most expensive painting up at that point was still less than a million. Right. It's really since, it's since the beginning of the 70s that, prices started to go up to 2 million. And by the late 80s, you know, the age of Reaganomics and Thatcherism, you were getting 50 million being paid for Van Gogh. And then since then, it's gone even more for me. And yes, in this, this millennium, it's, you know, you've, you've reached prices which well exceed 50 million. There's been huge sales in the last 12 months. A modern-day Mona Lisa. That's how the chairman of Christie's is describing a portrait of Marilyn Monroe. Andy Warhol's Marilyn was a big deal. Warhol's Marilyn is expected to shatter records for contemporary art when it goes up for auction on Monday, bringing in the realm of $200 million or more. The funny thing was that the market and everyone else decided it was going to be a big deal. I mean, there was a lot of excitement and kind of sustained hype around it in order to drive up prices for contemporary art to establish a new kind of top level. Right. You must realise most the most expensive paintings at auction are not contemporary works of art. Mm. Um, well, for a start, they're paintings. It's paintings are still the most expensive art form. And in general, it's paintings either by the modern masters, Picasso, Cezanne, Van Gogh, Americans like Jackson Pollock, Mark Rothko. 318, gentlemen. 400 million. And then earlier artists as well. The most, the most expensive painting in the world, the biggest record, was set six years ago by Leonardo da Vinci's Salvato Mundi. $400 million is the bid, and the piece is sold. And, and, and ever since then, it's been a weird game of how high those prices will go. And I think it's a game that's played by collectors and auction houses in sync. But is it corrupting anyway? Does it does does that insane amount of money affect the work that's being made? Well, one way to answer that is by looking at artists. I know I've met artists who who are millionaires, multimillionaires, 
who are not corrupted by that mm. because they live for their work. However, if you look in the bigger picture, if this is the most expensive and commercial era in the history of art, will it also be seen as a great period in the history of art? And the only honest answer to that can be pull the other one. No, we're in, oh, a, wow. we're in a we're in a black hole of art. Really, we're in a kind of we're at the doldrums of at the end of something. Um, I, I mean, the, the really great exhibition that's opened this autumn in Britain is Cezanne, working in the late nineteenth century. Died in nineteen oh six. Wasn't working for the market. There wasn't really much market for his works. Now they're very expensive. There is a level of intensity and genius in that exhibition and in, in the art of Cezanne, which no one on earth matches now. And Frieza's kind of, I think, I think it helped to create this really kind of smooth, normal domestication of contemporary art, that it's not even dangerous anymore. Well, it's interesting you say that because obviously you're an art critic who is out there every week looking at what's new and what's not. But... If this huge explosion in wealth and interest, popularity of modern art isn't reflected in actually what is artistically being produced, doesn't it all feel a bit pointless? And is it true that there isn't any great art moment occurring right now? Yeah, I mean, I... How do you decide? What moves you in that way that you... Are you willing to be wrong in 20 years, is what I'm saying, Jonathan, if uh, Suzanne was so reviled back in the time he was working to where he is now when you're saying it's the greatest exhibition one can see in London? Well, I mean, yeah, but I'm not wrong. I mean, <laughs> people are actually craving authenticity and, you know, like it's a cliche, but, you know, everyone wants a bit more, a bit more than just the hottest, the hottest new thing, which is interesting. And I suppose one of the damaging things about Freeze, the Turner Prize, all the kind of institutions of our art world is that they all validate instant sensational wow art <laughs> so by making art exciting we might have made it boring can you introduce yourself hi i'm yujo gulech i'm 32 i'm an aries and i like long walks on the beach um and why are you here at freeze today i love to look at overpriced and crap art so you're not looking to buy anything today no. i'm you... an artist myself so i always find it really interesting to come like from one spectrum to the other. And then you're like, the arena that you see the art in changes how much it is and like what the value, not monetary value, but also intellectual value, yeah. I think. And it's always interesting to see all of it. How difficult is it for you to live and work as an artist? Do you have to do anything else? Yeah, of course. It's incredibly difficult. It's one of those industries that you realize when you're in school and you have such an kind of organic mindset to it and it's so natural and exciting and all of that stuff you get lost in the passion and then you don't have any real world experience and then as you you know expose yourself more and more and you realize how galleries operate how the art world operates how it's basically no different to any other industry are you disheartened by how commercial this this, this aspect of the art world is or or do you think well maybe I think, yes, that's a tough one, because if you're disheartened, you'll probably can never be a part of it, right? Okay. So it brings out the... Do you want the... to be a part of this? Do I? No, not in this capacity.
so Jonathan, are like buying property or a Chanel handbag or trading in commodities has now become a key way for very, very rich people to invest their money. Do you think it's a safe bet? Part of me thinks it's um, a brilliant joke on the rich because certainly a lot of the stuff at Freeze Art Fair, if you're talking about going around Freeze and, and buying, you know, snapping up some trendy, really trendy stuff at Freeze, mm. great, but that might well be not at all respected or valued five years from now. So it might have reached its peak value Ten at years the from fair. Now. I mean, well, yeah, I mean, Freeze, you know, it does resemble, it is a bit like going around Selfridges. It loves fashion, but fashion goes out of fashion. Mm. Um, contemporary art is going through a kind of convulsion of taste at the moment. There's stuff, there's artists who were really the bee's knees, who were really rated, you know, five years ago. Like who? who were sudden, well, I might not name names there, but 10 years ago, the fashion would have been video. And then this year, chances are you'll have a lot of figurative painting. So but, I can see you're not really going to name names for me, but you can tell me about, I guess, general trends and what's selling at the moment, what's gone up and what's gone down in recent years. Well, it's very interesting at the moment. The thing is that the fact that the art market's about money and big money doesn't mean that it doesn't have a social conscience because, in fact, the vogue in the art market is very much towards political work and, and, and paintings that are political, paintings mm. with a strong sense of social justice, which is weird. I find that totally weird. I find it totally weird and peculiar, actually, that, that, that the art market is actually at the moment totally addicted to, uh, to radicalism. You'll see a lot of, you know, a lot of radical stuff at Freeze. Coming up, will the art bubble burst? anytime soon. So we've now landed on the additions corner, which is supposed to be the affordable end of the art fair. Well, in fact, no, it is, I shouldn't say supposedly. There's a lot of smaller works, stuff that you could hang in your living room. And of course, there is a massive queue. There's an Ai Weiwei, 3D printing of his left hand, an addition of 20. Ai Weiwei is sticking the finger up at us as we look at it for £15,000. But next to it, a £100 lithograph print. Hi, Hi Hello. Nice to meet you. I'm Noshin. Hi. How are you? I'm well. I'm excited. And not too far from the fair's more affordable selection of artist editions, I meet Eva Longray, the director of Freeze. I think the thing that's important to remember, and often so the misconception, is that you actually do not need to be a millionaire to buy art. And here at the fair, we have artworks that go for sale for a few hundred pounds. We're selling artworks in support of non-profit organizations. And so there really is a wide range of works. It all depends what you call affordable. Of course, 200 pounds is already a lot of money, but it's not necessarily the huge sums that people are expecting to see when we talk about art fair. So 
it's really the most important platform and it's really a space where you, we can discover and we can encourage new voices and there's many ways in which we do that. What do you say to critics who say that Freeze has commercialised the art world and cheapened it and turned art into a commodity and investment rather than a creative practice that's pure to life? I would say that artists need to be paid and I think the art fair contributes hugely to that. I think, um, you know, if, if an artistic practice really is a lifelong work, then it needs to be also one where people are paid properly. And I think the art market provides that. Jonathan, can we talk about one artist in particular who definitely is being paid? Damien Hirst. Now, in 2008, he sold more than $200 million worth of his work at auction on what turned out to be the morning that Lehman Brothers collapsed, causing a global financial crisis. This year, Time to Freeze, Hearst is staging an outlandish exhibition in which he is burning some of his paintings. What is going on? Well, the reason he's burning them is because he sold them as NFTs. So, you know, non-fungible tokens. This has been a phenomenon in the art world and the art market in the last couple of years that you can buy a virtual artwork and own it as if it was an object and what Hearst did he sold these works which are their paintings but he sold them as NFTs and then he gave people the choice they could either keep the NFT or the actual physical work of art and if they chose the NFT he would burn the physical work of art so the NFT was the only thing in fact slightly more than half the people chose to keep the painting um, but <laughs> nearly half the people which is quite a lot because it was a big addition kept the nfts so this week he's personally incinerating his own works of art and you can actually go and watch him doing it at his newport street gallery the art world's enfant terrible had something cooking Damien Hirst announcing his presence by casually setting fire to almost £10 million worth of work. And when asked if he worries about the morality of essentially burning money during a cost-of-living crisis, this is what he had to say. I'm not burning my art, I'm transforming it. That's about Hirst being a very canny businessman and who, you know, Andy Warhol said he was a business artist, but frankly Hirst has taken that much further than Warhol did and much further than Jeff Koons, uh, the other kind of, you know, famous kind of business artist. Uh, so Hearst is the richest artist on the planet. He is a billionaire. You can't help thinking it's also a kind of weirdly nihilistic gesture, mm. a kind of almost confession of disillusion. I think Hearst exemplifies what's wrong with this whole thing with the market. You know, what's wrong with the market? Unfortunately, the reason why is staring us in the face and his name is Damien Hirst. And Hirst was an exceptional, exhilarating artist in the early 1990s. He was one of the reasons that I ended up writing about art. He used to say brilliant things. I'm trying to find a way to have animals in cases that decay where you don't smell anything so you can actually look at them so you can watch this kind of decay and the smell puts you off because it's disgusting. You take that smell away and you should be repulsed, but you can't be repulsed. I like that. I was gobsmacked when I saw his shark mm. in the Saatchi Gallery. It compelled me in a kind of deep way. It was amazing. Uh, then. Um, and now? 
well, now even the shark has shriveled and it looks, you know, desiccated and not too impressive. Um, and and those if that isn't a art, metaphor. Yeah. I mean, I guess Damien Hirst is arguably a really good example of what happens to an artist that has been extremely commercially successful in this period where the global art market has seen this incredible growth, which you've talked about, not just in terms of sales, but in public appetite for going to art exhibitions. You could also turn it the other way around. You know, we're saying, why has the market gone so crazy? Why are such crazy prices pay for art? You could turn it around and say, well, why does anyone look at art at all? Why, why is art a, our religion? I mean, art... Why is it, Jonathan, without well, getting too existential? Why well, exactly. is it so important? It, art fills deep needs. I mean, I'm addicted to art and looking at art. And I think a lot of people are. We, we crave it and it attracts, you know, huge amounts of people go to see to take modern and... So I can't, so can I be that angry at someone, you know, who happens to have a few million at their disposal and spends it on art? Um, would I do that if I was, had that money? Yes. So, you know, the insane prices, are they simply a, a fair reflection of a passion for art that our society, you know, almost universally shares? Finally, Jonathan, do you think this current trajectory is sustainable or does it feel like a, a bubble that may burst? I think if it was I think if it was going to burst, it would have burst by now. I think art has become something different. It, it, it's become partly entertainment that it you know provides a kind of spectacle and partly it has become a, an investment. People actually enjoy speculation mm. and that it's like playing poker or something so it's got an economic reality almost outside its aesthetic reality but you know if the, if there was a crash if the art market did crash if it totally crashed i had to sort of start again i'm pretty sure that would be good for art so part of me wishes it would happen well a lot of me wish i'll be honest i wish it would happen jonathan thank you so much that was Jonathan Jones. You can read his review of this year's Freeze Art Fair and more at theguardian.com. And that is it for today. This episode was produced by Rose Dellarabiti and Josh Kelly. Sound design is by Rudy Zagadlo. The executive producer was Huma Khalili. Have a lovely weekend. We'll see you on Monday. This is The Guardian. <laughs> 